Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. All right, during the four Sundays of Advent, we are awaiting Messiah with four Hebrew prophets. Last Sunday, we were waiting with Jeremiah and we learned about the newness that is coming that's going to surprise us. And then today, we're going to wait with Malachi. Malachi is the prophet whose poems close the Old Testament and they are poems that are straining with anticipation for the appearing of Messiah. Malachi speaks of a messenger who will come first to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare the way of Messiah. Then Malachi, at the very end of the book, which would make it the very end of the Old Testament, then Malachi closes the Old Testament by telling us that this forerunner will come as Elijah the prophet. This message this messenger that's going to be the forerunner and prepares the way for Messiah um, comes first. And then Messiah comes and Malachi tells us that Messiah will come like a refiner's fire. Malachi chapter 3. In the fifth... Oops, I'm in Luke. Okay, there we go. It's, it's going to be all right. I'm, I'm getting in the groove here. Malachi chapter 3. See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like Fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years." Malachi prophesies that God will send a forerunner in the power of Elijah to prepare the way for Messiah. Then when we get into the New Testament, we discover that that forerunner is in fact John the Baptist. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism for repentance so that people's hearts would be prepared for the appearing of Messiah. And John's thunder in the wilderness sermons were filled with themes of justice. That's what he preached. He preached that the rich should share their wealth with the poor. He preached that tax collectors should repent of their dishonesty and began to be honest in their business dealings. He preached that soldiers should stop 
tactics of intimidation by which they extort people and should treat everybody as their brothers and sisters. John the Baptist preached that everybody should repent. He didn't just say it to, he said everybody. In fact, I mean, it says that he preached to the crowd saying, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. You can't talk to people like that. But John the Baptist didn't. You would think no one would come, but crowds came, massive crowds came. He wouldn't go to the, he was just out in the wilderness, but Jerusalem came out to him, massive crowds. And he would say, you bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee the wrath that is to come? He says, I'm telling you, the ax is just laying right there at the root of every tree. And if you don't start bearing good fruit, share with the poor, be honest in your dealing, treat people with kindness. If you don't start bringing, then they, the ax is going to cut you down and throw you into the fire. That's how John the Baptist preached. So both Malachi and John the Baptist were essentially saying the same thing. You long for the coming of Messiah, but can you handle it when he appears? They say the one whom you seek will suddenly appear in his temple, but can you stand it? I mean, what if Messiah appears suddenly in the temple in Jerusalem, but he has a whip in his hand and he overturns the tables? which is what happened. Suddenly Jesus is in the temple, but what does he do? He takes a whip and drives out the beasts and he turns over the table of the money changers and he thunders, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. It's to be a house of prayer. See, the mistake that we so easily make is to imagine that when the Lord comes, he comes to deal with them. We got bad guys, and I can't wait for the Lord to come to deal with them. That's what we imagine, that the Lord will come and only deal with them, not with us. That he'll just pat us on the head and say, you were always such a good little boy or girl. No, when the Lord comes, he's going to deal with all of us. And so we shouldn't be so sure that our heart is pure gold without any dross. The dross of idolatry or injustice. Malachi's prophecy says, he is coming Somebody say, he's coming. He is coming, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire. He is like a launderer's lye soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify and refine them like gold and silver. God is holy fire is a theme that goes throughout the Bible quite literally from Genesis to Revelation. Abraham encounters God at Hebron as the sun has set and he's prepared a sacrifice and he's waiting on God and how does God come? God comes as a smoking oven and a burning torch. Moses encounters God in a burning bush in the wilderness. After leading Israel out of Egypt, he takes them to Mount Sinai and Mount Sinai is covered in fire and Moses enters that fire for 40 days and 40 nights. Elijah said, let the God who answers by fire be God. Amen. Ezekiel 
had visions of God by the river Kibar and he said it was like a blazing fire. Daniel had a vision of the ancient of days upon his throne and he says, and from the ancient of days there flowed forth a river of fire. John the Baptist said that Messiah would consume the chaff with unquenchable fire. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen? That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Our God is a consuming fire. Now, should we fear the consuming fire of our God? Ultimately, we should not. But the fear of God is a necessary place to begin. It's not the full revelation, but wisdom is begun in the fear of the Lord. It's by the fear of the Lord that we begin to take God seriously. It's by the fear of the Lord that we acknowledge that there is an accounting, that nothing is hidden, That everything will be addressed. As the Apostle Paul says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the deeds done in the body. Once we actually believe that and say, hmm, that's serious. My life is to be evaluated by Jesus. I mean, I'm going to have a job evaluation of my life with Jesus. If we're serious about that, if that strikes us as something that might be worthy of taking seriously, that's the fear of the Lord. But, but, the consuming fire of God only consumes that which needs to be consumed. Think of the burning bush where Moses encountered God in the wilderness. The bush was ablaze with the fire of God, but not consumed by it. The bush was on fire, or at least the fire was in the bush. The fire was real, the fire was there, but the bush remains green and verdant and living. It's not reduced to ashes. All that is pure and holy in our lives lives and continues to live like the burning bush, ablaze but not consumed, on fire but not lost, refined but not destroyed. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who will not bow. You know, they play the national anthem, you know, and all of that. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow before the great statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's incensed and he says, heat it up seven times hotter. They heat up this furnace seven times hotter. And these, these three Jews who've been deported into the land of Babylon but won't participate in idolatry, they are bound, we're told. They're bound, bound hand and foot. And thrown into the fire. But what happens? Nebuchadnezzar's peering into the fire. He says, wait a minute. How many did we throw in? Three. Yeah, that's what I thought. One, two, three, 
four. How come I see four? And the fourth one's like the son of God. And they're all loosed and walking about. They're not bound anymore. And when they came out of the fire, it says that not a hair on their head was singed. There wasn't even the smell of smoke upon them. All that had burned up was their bonds. There are some things that are good to, to be lost to the fire. Our God is a consuming fire, but what does he consume? He consumes that which needs to be consumed. The things that bind us, the things that limit us, the things that keep us from being who we're supposed to be in the fire of God, those are burned up. So once you know that, once you know that the fire of God only consumes that which needs to be consumed, will you venture into the fire knowing that only your bonds will be consumed? Probably not. <laughs> Probably you won't choose it, but that doesn't matter because you won't have any choice anyway. That's why the apostle Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes among you. Don't be surprised when everything's on fire is what Peter's saying. It's in the end only going to refine your faith. You're going to have a genuine faith. All the fake stuff is going to get burned up, but the real faith is going to be refined. The consuming fire of God only consumes what is consumable. Things like wood, hay, straw. That which is unconsumable is only refined. Things like gold and silver, and precious gems. This is how Paul envisions the judgment seat of Christ. He said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The one who in the book of Revelation is portrayed as having eyes of fire. And Christ shall look upon us with his eyes of fire. What happens? We enter the fire. And what happens, some things are lost. Wood, hay, and straw get burned up in the fire that emanates from Christ. But the gold, the silver, and the precious stones, that is unconsumable. And it's only refined in the fire. So this is, this is how the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 envisions the judgment seat of Christ. As a purgatorial fire, a purging fire, a refining fire. Paul tells us that the result of encountering Christ as a consuming fire is to be saved through the fire. Saved, not lost, saved through the fire. Saved because what, the fire of God only consumes that which is consumable and what is not consumable is the image of God. The imago Dei, the everlasting diamond of bearing the image of God that you were created to bear. The wood, the hay, and the straw, what's that? I don't know. It's things like pride, greed, and lust. That stuff gets in our life. We pick it up along the way. We're formed in it. Sometimes we willingly embrace it and hold it dear. But in the fire of God, the wood, pride, the hay of our own greed, the stubble of our own lust, it's burned up. 
But the precious gem of the Imago Dei will remain so that last you can shine. You're like a diamond. You're a diamond. You're a diamond. But sometimes we're covered over in chaff. And we don't, and the, and we don't see the diamond self. We see the chaff self. Everybody's created in the image of God. Everybody's a diamond. We all shine on, except when we're all covered in chaff. And so the fire comes upon us, burns away the chaff so we can shine on you crazy diamond. Amen. It's a good line right there. So what is this consuming and refining fire of God that the coming of Jesus brings? We're in Advent. We're talking about the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord brings a fire. Many, many, many. I mean, it's just it's throughout the Bible. Kind of focusing on Malachi 3, but it's, it's everywhere. When the Lord shows up, it's fire. What is this consuming, refining fire that the presence of God brings? Is it judgment? Yes, it is judgment. We can say that it's judgment because that's true. But we can also speak more precisely if we like. The fire of God is nothing other than the blazing love of God. From the heart of God, like Daniel saw, the ancient of days, from the heart of God, the center of God, the very essence of God, there flows a river of fire. And what is that river of fire? It is nothing but unconditional, unchanging, immutable, eternal and everlasting love. God is love. That's, that's the love of God comes forth as a river of fire. The book of Revelation, by the way, by the way, ends with death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire. There are some things that will be good to be lost forever. Amen. The refining fire of God is the blazing love of God. I want you to, I want you to understand that. The, the refining fire of God is the blazing love of God. God does not oscillate between anger and love, between wrath and redemption. God is always blazing, redeeming love. So what is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is the love of God wrongly received. There's only two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. Now, how that plays out and what that looks like can be very complex and we have to grow and mature and gain wisdom and all sorts of things. But really, there's only two commandments. Love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. That's why Augustine famously writes, love and do what you will. But you have to understand that love has to be purified. That has to be the God kind of love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. If to the extent that your life exhibits that love of God, love of which is the opposite is idolatry and injustice. To love God with all your heart is true worship. The false worship is to love something else supremely. That's idolatry. And then that, uh, that influences how we treat our neighbor. If we love our neighbor as ourself, we do unto them as we would have them do unto us. That's called justice. If we don't do that, if we take advantage, if we hate, if we abuse, if we, if we say, well, you know, that's their lot, but I'm lucky and so I can just forget about them. No, that's, that's not acting in love and 
That's injustice. The wrath of God is the love of God wrongly received. That which is of love in our lives, when we encounter the, love, the fiery love of God, it's simply warmth and light, making our love even greater, even brighter, even hotter. That which is in our life that is not according to love is consumed and we experience the pain of loss of it. We need to lose it, but sometimes, how many of you know, we'll hold on to things we should not hold on to. And it gets burned up and we experience, temporarily anyway, the pain of loss. That's how we understand the wrath of God. If we're deeply invested in the wood, the hay, the straw, the pride, greed, and lust in our life, we may lose much and may experience it initially as a sorrowful sense of loss. We can call that the wrath of God. But it's only so that the diamond of who you really are can at last begin to shine. God is love and God's love is an intense, fiery love. God is not lukewarm toward you. When you come up in the mind of God, and by the way, you're always there. God doesn't think of you, yeah, you're all right. Yeah. Yeah. No, God's loves you with a fiery, and he's not lukewarm. God loves you with a fiery, intense love. George MacDonald in his sermon, in Unspoken Sermons, The Consuming Fire says, love loves unto purity. Love loves unto purity. How does God love you? He's loving you unto purity. God is love and God is determined to love us pure. You say, God, I'm afraid of your fire. He said, it's only my love and I'm going to love you pure. Advent is a time for us to be intentional about drawing near to the holy fire of God. Advent is for doing things like that. Saying, I'm going to, I'm going to, get, I'm going to get close to the fire. How, how do we go about doing that? Well, there's a lot of ways, but here's a couple of suggestions. Between now and Christmas, restrict your Bible reading to the first half of the Gospels. Just read the first half of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that would be from the beginning to right before the transfiguration. When you get to the transfiguration, stop. In John, it's from the beginning of John's gospel right up to the raising of Lazarus, that story that starts in chapter 11, so it's the first 10 chapters. So in the synoptics, birth of Jesus to the transfiguration, John's gospel, birth of Jesus, or in the beginning was the word, to the raising of Lazarus. Just, just say, stay there, because the rest is going to be for Lent. The second half of the Gospels is for Lent. But just start reading there every day. Just read there every day. Doesn't matter. I don't care if it's a lot or a little, but every day. And then before you pray, say, and before you do that, then just pray. Jesus, baptize me in the Holy Spirit and fire. That's what John said he came to do. He said, I'm baptizing you in water, but there comes one after me. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. I'll tell you, when he comes, he'll baptize you in the Holy Ghost and fire. So just sit there and say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to spend time with you here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. While I'm sitting here with you, Jesus, baptize me in the Holy Spirit and fire. We celebrated last month, 40th anniversary of Word of Life Church. 
I just crossed another milestone that I didn't mention at the moment, but I'll mention it today. Three weeks after the first Sunday of Word of Life Church, I was ordained. Uh, the plan was to do it on that first Sunday, but it, the people that were going to be laying hands on me couldn't be there on that Sunday. So three weeks later, the three pastors, two from St. Louis, one from Cameron, came to our little old Word of Life Church down there at 11th and Sycamore and laid hands on me and ordained me as the pastor and into the ministry. One of the men from St. Louis was named Roland Smith. He's with the Lord now. And I deeply admired Roland and his wisdom. I, I felt my own inadequacy and, and I, he'd been a pastor for many years. And I would ask him questions and I remember sitting with him at Perkins restaurant that weekend right before my ordination. And in a moment of kind of rare vulnerability for me, I told him, we were just, just rolling and I at Perkins for breakfast. And I told him, I said, you know, I don't really know how to pray very well. And that was, you know, hard for me to just be that honest. I was afraid he was, oh, you don't know how to pray well, then I guess we're not going to ordain you. <laughs> what he said, though, he said, don't worry about it. When you need to know how to pray, you'll learn. Which at the time I thought was a fairly lame response, actually, to be honest with you. I said, does he not know? No, I think he does know how to pray, but why won't he tell me? Well, who knows, but it turned out to be true. Now, what was surprising, it took 25 years. <laughs> it was 25 years before I really learned how to pray, but when I really needed to know, I learned. I say that because I want you to understand that I respect him. And he had a prophetic thing about him that was genuine. And when he laid hands on me, along with the other two pastors, down there on 11th Street in November of 81, he prophesied over me. The others may have too, but I don't remember what they said. But I've never forgotten his. You know, and there's something about that. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God abides. And he said, very simply, he said, you will have a gift and you will lay hands on people to impart the fire of God. I've never forgotten that. And I've done that many times. He said, you'll stir it up from time to time to lay hands on people and impart the fire of God. And I've done it many times over the, year, but not, over the years, but not lately. And so today, after we dismiss the service, I'm not going to be out in the foyer as I usually am. I'll be right down here, just right down here, front and center. And if you would like me just to pray over you, that the fire of God would be imparted to you, I'll lay hands on you and pray that. So that's what we'll do after we dismiss the service. Amen and amen. Stand up with me. Let's prepare our hearts now to come to the, to the table of the Lord. Let's first confess our faith and then confess our sins. Pray with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. 
He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's confess our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for his mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are purged. They're forgiven. You're free from them. Amen. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ is broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.